This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, my father. Uh, hi, Ernie. How are you, mom? Definitely quieter than it has been, so <laughs> we're just glad <laughs> we can catch quieter? up. I mean, it's been busy the last couple of weeks with work and uh, all <laughs> yeah. sorts of things, and of course, you had some yeah, family mom's, things uh, going uh, on. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so Anjali's actually home today. She's a little under the weather, but oh, okay. hopefully she'll be well enough to, for her opening night. Today is the oh. uh, uh, the Dinosaurs Before Dawn, the musical that starts tonight. So hopefully she will. Yep. Yeah, she's well enough that we figured just have her rest today and then she can go tonight. She has two shows tonight and then two shows tomorrow where we're all going to be going. And of course, since really? I have my headphones on, the dog. Sorry, really what? No, uh, my mom just here so for this part. Um, so Anjali has two shows tonight and two shows tomorrow coming. Right. The dinosaur yeah. part. The, dinosaur. the, the musical theater. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Tell her break a lot. All right. <laughs> okay, now I'll go back to my earphones. Okay. <laughs> you got your earphones. As soon as I put my headphones phone? in, yeah, because as soon as I put mine on, then the dogs know, feel like it's time for their walk. Oh, okay. They're conditioned. They're conditioned. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> we are on chapter nine. So chapter eight still. Oh, Thanks. eight still? Yeah, because we never did it. So, because the... The the chapter eight started with um look here because it's the 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 thing where oh you're right no it was nine yes you're right never mind yeah I thought we finished uh, chapter eight and he's gone okay. and prepared the uh, for the sheikh's party to come so he's there by himself now. Getting ready. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is the. So let's go back to the beginning of chapter nine. Um, he says this is the best two are. weeks of his life or something. He had a very quiet time there. Right. So, he's, you know, uh, he's so uh, this is where he gets his. Uh, uh, his vacation with Nadezna, right? Nadezna. <laughs> yeah, right. Huh? No, 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 not yet. No. He's by himself. Yeah. Okay, the first part is he's getting first part he's getting ready for the sheik. Okay. Right, so it's a very long chapter. It's a yeah, very long right. chapter. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So it starts out with the yeah, so literally just the overview of the chapter is basically the sheik comes, um and then other pilgrims start coming and the the people in Bali get upset and he sort of gets is about to get kicked out. And he's also when the sheik is there, the sheik's doctor finds out yeah. that Connie is, is sick. Yeah. But he won't tell them. And eventually he finds out that like he's actually really sick and needs to go to a hospital. And then the chapter ends with the uh the girl who's in love with Connie begging to be able to go to the hospital and take care of him. Yeah. Uh, um, 
Uh, yeah, and in between, yeah, there's this romantic Tommy, scene yeah, with Tommy and, yeah. and uh, Medenza, where, you know, because on the way, because I guess when they go to pick up Connie is when he tells her that Connie thought that they should get married. That he's married is then. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I but she goes, well, you know, where, you know, yeah. where, because kids and this and that, yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, basically, uh, she says basically no in some ways. Well, she says, I want to marry you, but I just don't see any way it'll work. Right. Yeah. And um, the the thing is that um, in between you have his sickness. Uh, and they, the, the sheik wants everything done. She wants uh, him to take to Europe and give the best uh, doctor possible and things like mm-hmm. that. But let me see whether um, they already told Connie here or not. Right, it's interesting. Like he's, uh, Tom was all, we're going to fight this and like this. But Nadenza is all like, he's going to die. That's just the way it is. <laughs> it is written. Yeah. And uh see, I think uh a couple of things there, you know, she um when they are near uh, Penang in Malaysia, he flies the plane down so that she could see where she grew up. Ah right, yeah. So, <laughs> and also he said he let her fly the plane for a couple of times. <laughs> and even if it's just considered the passengers, yeah. Yeah, Hussein kept bob- bobbing up to see what was going on. And once he asked me why I didn't use the automatic pilot, I said, I am. And indicated that there's not. I think he went down and told the passengers I was in love and they'd all probably be killed. <laughs> <laughs> Which ties into this theme of the tension between sort of romance and happiness and professional responsibility, right? Which is the thing that is both Connie and Tom have been trapped for and it's kind of, this is him sort of flirting with right prioritizing romance over business. Uh, business and it, you know, it, it doesn't look like it's going well from a business perspective. <laughs> so finally they, they talked to him about it and um then they uh they talked to Connie and tells him that uh, uh you you need to go uh, get treatment and he said you know they can keep it i belong in these countries not in france or england yeah so but he says but uh, first we have to go to karachi which is in pakistan and then see uh we can do something for it and he agrees to that so uh, at the same right, time I... he's getting he's getting kicked out also a bali right and that's why they were saying yeah. that they wanted to settle in a Buddhist country because that feels like a best yeah. uh, compromise, I guess. Cause the, yeah, you know, uh, when he, he gave a resignation letter before that. Connie gave him a resignation letter. Right, before yeah. he found out he was sick. And then he says, you know, I'm going to put him in my office in Siam. And she says, you have an office in Siam? He says, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
uh, then um, then uh, the last stage, of course, is like you said that uh, uh, that uh, Jasmine wants to be with him. She knows that you know if he's not he's going to be uh, sick enough. Uh, he won't be able to take care of himself, and she wants to be there. And he promises her basically that he uh, he will do that. So. So that you know gives a like a foretaste of what's going to come. So okay, so that's the story. So what is the thing that struck you most on this chapter? Yes, I was kind of looking back. I was looking back at the beginning of chapter nine. The quote is, "And God shall make thy soul a glass for eighteen thousand eons past, and thou shalt see the gleaming world as men see you upon the grass." And you kind of get the sense, you know, to hear that. Well, this is the the interesting um, tension in this um, book narrative between you know Connie is just an engineer who got you know was saying some nice ideas and kind of got a little over his head and trapped by mm-hmm. it versus he is a prophet he is a person who's achieved this state of enlightenment and is living this full meaningful life um, you know uh, even though it's very short and. I mean, the author, I think, kind of, at least at this point, kind of keeps it somewhat ambiguous yeah. about, you know, what Connie's uh, true state is, um, especially the, the so, um, I'm trying to remember, it's been so long since I read this, but the, um, I don't know, I think the most poignant part for me was this marriage, there's this issue of why exactly does Nazenza not want to marry him, right? Because in some ways, she, the like, well, I think her main concern is that their children would grow up this, uh, sort of ostracized. Yeah. And she doesn't want to not have children. And, you know, she sort of sees it as this implacable thing. Tom, being the pragmatic, says, well, there's got to be some country somewhere where this will work out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and... The you know, Zenza presumably grew up in England, you know, when uh, the last few years along with Connie, right? Because, cool. um, so Connie was in England with Tom, right? With Tom, when but not with Medesna. Medesna grew up in the U.S. Entirely? I thought she moved there afterwards. Yeah. I assumed no, that when she was young, she, she lived there with Connie. Well, she never came to England. Ah. No, no, she came when she was taking care of the mom. After mom died, she came from the U.S. trade to yeah, Bahrain. Yeah, right. But the question is, is that at some point she had to live with her mom, right? The question oh, is, is that she grew up in... So, so Nadenza originally grew up in this town that they flew over, right? Yeah, yeah Penang. In Penang. Penang. And, the, Penang. And then when Connie came to the U.S., did, did come to the U.K., yeah, uh, did she go little, with him? Little, little, little... Um, ambiguous. Uh, I, I, see, I don't know when they lived in Penang. Yeah. Because, um, because the place that they're looking at is an orphanage. They were not orphans, right? They had right. Yeah. So I don't know, but she grew up in Penang, and I don't know whether the mom got remarried or something. Because. Um, 
Connie was with Tom when he was 16 or 18 or something like that. Mm-hmm. They were basically teenagers. Maybe. Okay. So anyway, but regardless, anyway. you know, she probably, you know, I don't know if she lived much in the UK, but certainly in the US, she saw enough to know that half Asiatic children would probably not uh, fit in. Yeah. You know, 1950s America. Uh, I had this impression See, that she was in like Los Angeles or something on the, the West Coast. She was on the West Coast. See, Ernie, um, we have a good relationship with Tanzania, right? And we had a guy named uh, Martin Messama. Uh, I don't know whether you knew the family. Martin okay. Messama was a, uh, was a Tanzanian who came here as a social worker. And he met uh, an American girl, Pat, and uh, married her, and uh, they had children. They had a boy and a girl. They and they lived in the U.S.? Pat. Huh? Here, in, in uh, Joliet area. Russia. Okay. Joliet area. Illinois. And, okay. and they, 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 and Pat had told us, I mean, they're very good friends because uh, their, their daughter went to India with Kamali. Kamali is like a foster mom for her and things like that. Mm. But they were both, uh, both uh, David and uh, other girls' name, I'm getting, not getting it. Uh, they were called names, N N word. Mm. Uh, the the, in, the in parents Georgia. or the kids? The kids were. Kids were called mm. names. And they looked right, uh, African, right? And they looked African, so, and, and we're in an area where there's relatively few African Americans. Probably. Right? Yeah. 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 Even though the mom was white. And... Uh, and yeah. Then uh, David uh, came with us to Tanzania when we went on a mission. When we went on the trip, and then I did mission work and all that. And mm-hmm. he really fell in love with Tanzania, and mm. uh, decided to stay there, change his name to Dawood oh, wow. uh, rather than wow. David. And uh, then um, he uh, married a Tanzanian girl, mm. and the ELCA kind of uh, offered him a job as a ELCA representative in uh, East Africa. Wow. Tanzania, Botswana, a few other places. So he's he's there. He's our rep there. The daughter. Yeah, so, uh, but his, so his father was Tanzanian, but immigrated yeah. to the U.S. Yeah. And he sort of reversed and immigrated back. He, he grew up here. He grew up in Joliet, yeah. David? Anyway, the whole family so yeah. was born. But born, the father born here. grew up in Tanzania, yeah. Yeah, father did, but you know the boy was like you, born here, grew up here. Right. Yeah. Uh, so now they went back and and did that, and the daughter married a white guy, and uh, so mm. they live here. So, yeah. so uh, I mean, so it's not a. One of the things that we talked about, even when Larry wanted to marry Laura, was, uh, are will you be okay with the kids that are you know half and half? It's great. Yeah. And basically, Laura it was not a problem for her at all. So. Yeah. Uh, and then you know again being doctors' children and uh, I don't know but you people call you names you guys names very very rarely yeah very right. rarely I mean, I, I, yeah yeah and I think the um, the I would I would say that the consciousness of being Indian was probably hmm. a greater burden than the stigma of being Indian or being different right so the fact that I was an Indian and, you know, you're, the way people see you is how they're going to treat the next billion people that they meet who are Indian, right? That was like, that part I'm very aware of growing up is being mm. different and then having sort of an obligation because of that 
in mm. terms of any sort of stigma or shame, not really. It's more sort of amusing than uh, traumatic. Yeah, because in uh, some ways, you guys were very good in studies. Well, well like, you know, like I said, you know, Rochelle, even though it was this tiny little small town, the uh, you know, you're a doctor, the chief, the chief of police, the city engineer, like all the Indians <laughs> were there in high status positions, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is very different than if like, you know, like the Poles when they came, a lot of them came as laborers. Yeah. And so there was a lot of uh, negative stigma. Connotations. Uh, yeah. That and also, also uh, I mean, they, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they didn't come to small towns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, small yeah. towns. Like but I mean, like, like, part. like, like in Rochelle, you know, like the Hispanics are kind of the lower class ethnic group. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And you know, there is a Not certain amount people, of prejudice, yeah. and uh, you know, we don't really have enough blacks for that for that to be a significant thing. But yeah. the yeah, so even though the town is mostly white, the Hispanics are sort of perceived as lower class, and the Asians are mostly perceived as upper class because it's mostly the doctors and Middle engineers class. and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So, but anyway, I can imagine in 1950s America, it's going to be a lot harsher, and especially because Tom, at least, certainly I can see how Tom, with his you know, working class background in the UK, they wouldn't fit in. Um, and of course, we don't know what's going but, to happen. No, but, he, he, but you know, he's uh, he didn't look down upon them at all. You know, he well, so he certainly did. And, huh? Yeah, right. And but he got he like bristled kind of... when his family or his girl made negative comments about the Asiatics. Yeah, right? yeah, he got really uh, defensive. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, uh, he, uh, he, 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 he did, uh, especially Gujar Singh, as a partner. He, he talked with yeah. him and Connie before he made major decisions and things like that, so. Yeah. So. So anyway, the, mm. the um, so, I think they, they kind no, of just left it at that, right? A couple right? of other interesting, things, of other interesting okay. things. He's being kicked out of um, Bali. And uh -huh. then an then interesting thing happens. He goes and talks to uh, the governor and everything else. And, uh, Tom does. Yeah, Tom does. And as he's leaving, the um, young Dutchman, Andel, was waiting for me by the car. He was the man who mm -hmm. had taken me to Pekandang in the Jeep. And he says, is it true mm -hmm. that Shacklin has to go, he says. And yeah. Tom says, yes. He's a sick man. Anyway, I shall be sending down young Chinese to work with Finnick. And that guy said, I'm very, very sorry, Mr. Cutter. It may not be my place to say so, but I think this is a great mistake. I think I to my forehead, why do you say that? I think he's a very great man. Perhaps the greatest that ever visited Bali. And then he said, I'm interested in all that he has to do with airplanes. I served in the war. I was a rear gunner and all that. And, and I have been to Peck and Dank several evenings to be with Shacklin and listen to him talking. He's the greatest man that I've ever known. Wow. This is from, <laughs> he was a a Dutchman, Dutchman, right? <laughs> yeah. A young Dutchman. Yeah. See, that's interesting. Yeah, because the, there's this thing about, and so there's this interesting thing in that whether or not he's a prophet whether or not he's you know holy or whatever there is this um i guess charisma for lack of a better term yeah right uh, the sense that he carries with him 
and the way he impacts people, which is quite extraordinary and inspiring, uh, at least in this context. Yeah. And that is the uh, source of his problems <laughs> as well as his power. Yeah. Now, on another context, um, maybe it's out of context. I am now reading, there he gave me two books. One was, uh, was called Suli, about a basketball guy from South Sudan. The second one was Barack Obama's autobiography. Mm. The third book he had And right now I'm coming to chapter three. This is when he becomes, uh, from a community organizer in Chicago, he's going into politics. Okay, the Barack Obama. He becomes, uh, <clears throat> Who's Barack Obama? Who, like your, like David, right, has a white mother and a black father from Africa? Black father. No, no, not only that. So he has <laughs> become to that. So he goes to. Um, he wants to become a senator from Illinois. Mm. And, but because of that, or for that reason, he even when he was in the state senate, he was a state senator first in the Illinois mm -hmm. legislature, Springfield. Uh -huh. He'll go to Southern Illinois and meet with people, with the other mm. Democrats, and tell them uh, yeah. about it. But then he made one remark that was interesting to me. Instead of just telling all these people what I want to do, what I do for them, and what I can, uh, innovation and all that, he said, I listened. Mm. I listened and listened and found out that these people like to talk to me about things that matter to them. And he said, uh, people wondering me, looking like who I am, with a name Obama that rhymes with Osama, <laughs> with an Arab, Arab last name, uh, how would uh -huh. he be received? But he said, when I talked to these people, I realized that their aspirations were the same, their concerns were the same as anybody else. They want their children to do mm -hmm. well, be educated well, and find jobs and mm -hmm. all that. That kind of struck me. It was similar to this guy. You know, he didn't do anything remarkable. He mentioned only how to do things better. Mm -hmm. But that appealed to people. Now, so Obama, obviously, what Obama said or did appealed to people. He became president. Right. So it's interesting. You know? When you talk about remarkable, like, uh, mm -hmm. it was, he didn't do anything miraculous or supernatural, yeah. right? Yeah. So he did do something remarkable that was worthy of remarking upon. And I yeah. think that that's worth uh, calling out and trying to understand, like, what is the remarkable thing? Mm. Um, you know, so certainly um, being able to um, get outside of yourself enough to hear other people and help them feel seen and understood, that is not an easy thing. Um, and it's even harder if you're in a position of status and power because the people will feel like they have a claim on you and then you figure out how you're going to deal with it, which is always hard. Uh, yeah. But then... No, but the interesting the, thing is he did bring God into it, Ma. The interesting thing is... Sorry, who? Were you talking about Obama? No, I'm talking about Shacklin. Okay, you sorry. About Obama? <laughs> you're around <laughs> you're the line. Obama? <laughs> well, you're talking about... So, so the thing about Shacklin, Shacklin didn't... I mean, he has a deep sense of presence, right? Mm. Uh, that, that people always feel uh, like honored just to be around him. He doesn't, um, I'm trying to think, like he, people do come to him for counsel and ask questions or share their troubles, and he doesn't really do anything with it, but he does listen to them, right? So he does have that yeah. Yeah. dynamic as well. 
um, which is a significant thing. Um, the, 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 so I said, there's like, there's two things, like I, I was talking about with my counselor, right? there's two things I want. One, I just want to be seen. I want to feel like someone could actually see me as I am. Seen and heard, yeah, seen and heard, yeah. Yeah, but then the second thing is to also see me healthier. Like, can imagine me being a better version of myself and then give me a path to get from here to there. Mm. And I think that's only what Shacklin did. He like, he sort of understood, yeah. you know, intuitively or because he listened really well that, you know, these people have this dichotomy between their religious life and their professional life. And then he showed them a way to reconcile those two where they can see their work as a type of worship. See, the, I don't know too much about Buddhism and Hinduism, but Islam, their religion is the way of life, which is what we keep telling yeah. Christians it should be. And the funny or interesting thing is, the Hindus thought he was a divine uh, holy man. The Buddhists thought yeah, he was a holy man. Uh, yeah, the Muslims thought he was a holy man, a prophet. The prophet, and, 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 the, and, and the, the Buddhists thought he was uh, enlightened. Yeah. Yeah, finally, one Christian, the Dutchman, thought he was a very remarkable yeah. man, <laughs> a holy man. So, uh, yeah, it, it, that's the interesting thing about this. So, uh, I, I think I think what's interesting about this, this gets to this question of sort of religion versus spirituality, right? Mm, yeah. Is that yeah. Shaklin had this amazing, you know, remarkable ability to kind of fully inhabit the religious context of his listeners and yeah. talk about Allah and the Quran to Muslims. <laughs> and so on and so forth, in a way that didn't come across as patronizing or condescending or inauthentic, right? Because you can always imagine a cynical version of this where people are, um, you know, trying to co-opt religion in the service of something or other. Well, one might speculate this occasionally happens in the realm of politics. Um, yeah, yeah, or even, but, even religion, because of the, what do they call prosperity preaching? Yeah. And, In the and, sorry, you're, yeah, you were going to say something, or should I keep going? No, yeah, you keep going, yeah. So, so the yeah, interesting thing is that once you have a religious establishment or religious mm. norms, mm. then, you know, it is easy for those to become, you know, there's this law, I can't remember what the name of it is, that anytime that there's a good metric, it will be that the people trust, it will be pursued and gamed to the point where it is useless. Um, so, you know, if, um, like, for example, um, like going to church, like in the early days, you went to church because you really were sincere about God and you really wanted to become that kind of a person. And so church mm. became a place where people who were like that would show up. And so now there's places in the Bible Belt where it's expected that you would go to church to show that you're kind of that, that kind of person, whether or not you have any interest in God whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's become a cultural uh, trope rather than a organic uh, vitality. And what's interesting to me about Shacklin is that he um, in some ways fulfills the tropes rather than just, so before these things become a trope, before they become sort of a done thing that is culturally normal, there's something like the early Christians and early Muslims, I suppose, where they saw something and experienced something that made them 
people want to follow that life, right? Okay. Uh, this is the, 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 the founder effect, let's call it, right? It's like there's something about Jesus, there's something about Mohammed, something about the Buddha, that mm. when, when it was countercultural and irrational yeah. to follow him, they would uh, give up everything to, to, to follow that way of life. Which is yeah. a very different kind of decision than we're sort of socially normal, normalized. Yeah. Right. Yes, and yeah. an establishment. And what's interesting is that Shockland seems to have this sort of founder charisma. Yeah. But that it's like it's not just I mean, it is easy for people to accept him because he speaks the familiar religious language. Right? Yeah. But there's something they see in him, his his charisma, his gift, um yeah. that that people feel attracted to. It's like this is not just like, oh yes, he reminds me of this religion I'm uncomfortable with. Like he's the sort of person that uh, that religions get founded around, right? Yeah. He doesn't just use the troops, tropes, he sort of invents them and transcends them. And there's something, um, so I think this is, the, this is the strongest case to be made that whether or not he himself is conscious of it or believes it, mm. that he has a charism to him that yeah. is, really potent and powerful uh, yeah. and the sort of thing that gives people a sense of meaning and purpose uh, and identity. Mm-hmm. And you know, certainly the way he's presented in the story, he has this to such an extent that it is, I guess, literally transcendent, right? It transcends yeah. any given religious category. It transcends yeah. the normal business. Now, whether it's, um, you know, um, plausible or sustainable, right? The, you know, the, the you know, because certainly looking at the, uh, you know, step back and looking at it, it's like, you know, just telling people that they should pray while they work doesn't seem yeah. like it's sufficient to generate this mass pan-Asiatic religious awakening. But yeah. On the other hand, thinking about the, the, the cultural crisis that all of these countries are facing, you know, as yeah. they make the transition sort of you know, toward, they may not know it, but it's the end of colonialism, right? Yeah. And the beginning of modernity, right? All these traditional yeah. cultures are being absorbed into modernity and these airplane mechanics are kind of on the bleeding edge of that. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, there is a real crisis of identity and mm-hmm. someone who can manifest this sort of integrated life yeah, and ar- articulate in a way that people can they can feel seen in their pain and their shame, the contradiction. I mean, yeah. that's what I think about. Like, you know, for me, growing up Indian in Rochelle, uh, the weird part of it was that my brother Larry was both more Indian and more American than I was, right? He inhabited all the Indian cultural tropes, uh, mm. you know, Indian food and an Indian name and things mm. like that, and all the American mm. tropes. He plays football and president of the fraternity and all these sorts of things, right? And yeah. so yeah. for me, so, you know, I guess in some sense, it's like, yeah, like being able to inhabit this cultural crisis and transcend it and find meaning and give meaning to others is not a small thing at all. And maybe just and in your being case, able to I mean, do that. I may interrupt a little bit. So in your sure. case, only thing Indian about you was your looks. Everything else about you was American for a long time. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? And then I, go, and then I went off and You're had an arranged marriage. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I think it changed when you went to college. 
you know, well, yeah, yeah, I think in graduate school with Ro- Rohit, right? He's the one who yeah. took me to eat Indian food again, and I kind of made my peace <laughs> with my heritage. But yeah, like the point yeah. is, is that this level of existential cultural confusion is a real thing. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that, um, you know, I experienced it, you know, sort of in a solitary way, but arguably mm-hmm. these entire countries were facing that in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that someone, uh, so it wasn't just his teaching. It was the fact that he managed to find this level of wholeness and peace in this weird in-between world. Oh, that's interesting. That gives a whole new picture to this uh, critique of Nadenza's about like, well, you know, half Asiatics in England would not be treated well. Well, that was Connie, right? right? Wasn't Connie a half Asiatic going to the schools in England? Yeah. And maybe not at a yeah. very young age, yeah. but at some age. And yeah, somehow yeah, Tom was yeah, able yeah, to, yeah. 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 And, you know, Tom had no problem even kissing Connie <laughs> for the uh, airplane show they yeah. were in. Um, okay, so, but, um, yeah. I have another um, line of thought here. Sure. Um, we are doing Matthew and BSS. Okay, Bible Study Fellowship. Yeah. And, Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. He is reinventing religious beliefs. Mm. And he's both inhabiting and, and sub- whatever yes. you were saying, yeah. Whatever you are saying about Connie would be applied to Jesus. So in this novel, in this book, yeah. I have a sneaking suspicion that Neville Shoot is borrowing from life of Jesus, because remember the three denials that came earlier. Right, yeah, I was just going to talk about, about that. He's very explicitly, so he's certainly aware of it, right? Uh, he's certainly aware yeah. of, and, and, and certainly not just he's aware of it, Tom is aware of the parallels. And, you know, he he's uncomfortably aware that he's sort of, he's afraid that he's getting stuck in the role of Judas, or at least Peter, I guess, to be fair. Yeah, um, yeah, the, that idiot uh, console is more like the role of Judas, perhaps. But uh, the, um, but like certainly in the role of Peter uh, of denying him. But what's funny is that, you know, uh, Connie, um, it's weird. Connie, in some ways, is taking a slightly different, because Jesus, like fully inhabited the Jewish trope of the teacher or the rabbi. No, uh, he didn't. Uh, no, he reinterpreted. Well, I, I say he fully he fully inhabited and then he subverted it. Right? Is that you know he you know the the wandering rabbi going around preaching sermons in the synagogue. You know, I feel like Jesus did inhabit that trope before he subverted it. Mm, maybe. Well, why were you disagreeing? I thought from the beginning, he did go to synagogues, but even there, he didn't follow their uh, rules. He did everything against the cultural behavior of the Jewish rabbis. He touched well, well, the so, so, so let's be let's be clear. He didn't. I mean, yes and no, right? Is that he he. Um, so let me say, he invented the for, a lot of the forms of a rabbi. Like, you know, he was, he had a group of disciples who followed him around. He would go into the synagogue and do the readings, right? He, he, he lived the life of a Jewish rabbi. And people called him rabbi, right? He accepted that title. Um, in a way that That's Connie a, did not. That, like, Connie did not Connie, present himself as an imam, right? Connie may have had the, 
uh, the charism of someone like this, and he would speak into those contexts, but he never identified himself as a Muslim. Yeah. He never oh, yeah. claimed yeah. to be an imam like that, right? So Jesus, like, you know, Jesus notably, like the two most awkward passages in scripture is where Jesus, you know, acts like a Jew and kind of shuns the Syrophoenician woman and, and things like that, right? So he fully inhabited his identity as a Jew. Uh, and he, you know, accepted, uh, you know, the role of a teacher to start with. And then in the end, he kind of, uh, he, he subverted it, right? Is that yeah. he didn't either fit into either the zealot or the, or the, the Sanhedrin's view of what a teacher was. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, the, the, the idea of a wandering rabbi, you can imagine it being... I mean, I don't know for sure. I haven't looked at this in a while, but you know, there, there's the people who are like the standard temple priests, right? Mm, and yeah. they're part of the hierarchy, and they have their, you know, they're mentored by this guy and that guy, right? So there's a strict lineage and hierarchy and sort of a sanction mm. on that. But then it seems yeah. like there were a lot of these sort of wandering rabbis who just started attracting a following, and some of them were revolutionaries and radicals, right? And so, okay. if anything, he seemed closer to the trope of the uh, sort of the zealous radical type, like John the Baptist, yeah. right? Uh, who was you know, preaching against the authorities and getting themselves killed or, you know, whipping up followers. So I guess John the Baptist was probably a bit more, he was confrontational, but not violent, right? He yeah. wasn't calling for the overthrow of Rome. And he was also, and that's not prejudice, like he would, he would chew out uh, Jewish Pharisees and Roman soldiers with uh, equal um, uh, acceptance slash criticism. <laughs> like, yeah. do this, don't do that. Like, doesn't matter where you're from. I don't. He, has no, he was no respecter of positions at all. Right. Uh, either internal or external. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing you with you on that at all. The only thing I'm trying to point out is not about Connie. Connie is a fictional character, and Jesus was a historical person. So what I'm saying right. is, this Neville shoot seems to mm -hmm. borrow from the uh, behavior of Jesus and uh, his. Uh, well, I, th I think it's fair to say he, probably, he, he right. I think he draws from. I mean, he certainly seems very knowledgeable of and respectful for toward Christianity, okay. Islam, oh, Buddhism, mm -hmm. Hinduism. Right. Which he, is very he, he has Connie. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, it is a, a, a deep sensitivity, especially in this yeah. time and place, especially yeah. for an airplane guy, right? He's not a theologian or a <laughs> yeah. scholar, you know, yeah. uh, but he, so he's, so, so Neville Shute and Connie both seem to have a deep understanding and respect for and an ability to speak into that tradition. Like, I think today, if he tried to speak like this, he would be perceived as patronizing and phony. But at the time, I think it really did feel and was probably even received as, like, I feel like if a Muslim or if, if like, he had, maybe he even did, right? He may have had Asiatics working in his uh, factories yeah. or in some of the airfields, <laughs> and yeah. he would have, you know, uh, had them look at this. I think they would have probably, you know, um, felt this was like, yeah, this guy really gets us. Yeah. And they can imagine a world where someone like Connie could come in and have that kind of an impact. 
Uh, yeah. See, um, another thought that I have before I forget, I better talk to you about that before it goes away. Yeah. I think both Jesus, both this Connie here, and the person I'm going to talk about is mm-hmm. Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Hello? Hello? You still there? Yeah, sorry. My my watch interrupted my phone. (laughs) Okay. Uh, okay. Is it both Connie and Jesus? And Mother Teresa. You were saying? And Mother Teresa? Mother Teresa. Yeah. Because Mother Teresa, her appeal was her, not her preaching. It was her real um, lifestyle of service, of taking care of the uh, unwanted people, showing kindness, showing love. Uh, and those are the things that she she was admired by every religion, basically. Right, yeah. She, she right. Was, uh, so India made her about her. her. India, yeah, India, you know, celebrated her and, and yeah. was, uh, kind of warned her and everything else. So I think, of course, she she borrowed it from Jesus. She learned from Jesus and did the, those things. Yeah. So uh, we, we were talking earlier about the, the religion, the uh, organized religion and uh, those things, or, the establishment yeah. part of it. Whereas these people didn't fit into the mold. Neither one of these people fit into that mold of the establishment. Jesus was not well, establishment. Is, Mother Teresa was well, not well, establishment. Right, although I think it, it feels like there's the difference here, and I, think, I don't know if it's significant or not, but it, it, it feels significant to me, which is that mm. like Mother Teresa was inoffensive. I mean, she offended people who just thought the poor should die, but she was not mm. perceived as any sort of threat to the establishment, political, religious, or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, she right? wasn't kicked out of any country. <laughs> she wasn't kicked out of country, like everyone was happy. Like she's not like causing any civil unrest. Jesus, on the other hand, seemed to go out of his way to antagonize the Pharisees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And whereas Connie's sort of in the middle, right? In that <laughs> yeah, he's okay. not deliberately trying to cause any trouble, but because he is creating this sort of mass religious movement in a place where the secular officials are terrified of offending the religious authorities, it just makes them yeah. deeply uncomfortable in ways they're not always able to articulate very well. And yeah, so he ends up being... Was, yeah, because uh, they didn't realize it. But the funny thing was, everywhere Connie went, the local religious authorities were not offended. They were actually yes. coming to him. Either the mullahs in Bahrain, whether the uh, Hindu priests Priest in, in Bali. Bali. Yeah. yeah. Or uh-huh. the Buddhists in Siam. Uh, yeah. <laughs> monks, the monks were coming. Right. So they they, were not, I think it was, the problem was with the, by the British as well as the Dutch. They didn't understand what was going on, and their perception was wrong. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, This is actually a point in the favor of your analogy argument, is in some ways, uh, one of the reasons why Jesus was threatening is because, you know, the closest trope for a messianic figure, right, Mm -hmm. is one of these sort of Maccabean revolutionaries. Yeah. Right. And so in terms of if you had to find a category to describe Jesus, okay, he's not conforming to the religious hierarchy. And therefore the the naive assumption would be that he's like anti Rome and he's gonna be one of these Jewish zealots who's gonna fight for overthrow. Yeah. And then Jesus refuses yeah. to do that. Like he says, you know, yeah, right. well, yeah, he's taxes to Caesar. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the next uh, DBJ I want to do is about Malthus's ear. Uh, you know, the 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 servant yeah, of the high priest sure. who gets his ear cut off yeah. by Peter. Yeah, um, Peter awesome. You know, you know that's uh, you know that because Peter's like, okay, this is the moment we strike the sword of truth, and it's like, nope, got it all wrong. <laughs> um, so anyway, but the um, mm. the interesting thing is that the um, if you think about it this way, the British and Dutch governments mm. is uh, they don't really have a category for anyone like Connie, right? Right. Yeah. And so the only category they can kind of come up with is a weird populist figure we can't control, right? Because yeah. the British government was all based around, you know, kind of, um, if you want to say, uh, gen generously, you know, finding a way to work with and honor the local religious officials. If you want to be less generous, you could say it's co-opting and coercing. <laughs> the local religious and political figures to, uh, you know, tolerate uh, European sovereignty over them. Uh, but regardless, they had sort of come to an accommodation with the existing religious structures. And once it's us, from okay. perspective, uh, the reason that the British and the Dutch, let me, okay, let me explain something, one quick point, is that maybe okay. one of the reasons that they're uncomfortable is they sort of at some level know that what they're doing is a bit inauthentic. And so if these people actually get more serious about their religion and their national identity, it would not end well for them, which it doesn't <laughs> in the long run. Yeah. So anyway, so in that sense, they're, they're right to fear any sort of sincere, spontaneous religious expression uh, within the cultural norms because that, uh, you know, the British government, the British, uh, Patriarchy works best when people have sort of a nominal attention, attention to their faith and their culture and their heritage, but don't take it too seriously. Mm. Could be that interesting. Maybe, anyway, uh, so it's an interesting thing. But the thing was, in India, the British did put a stop to some other Hindu religious practices. One mm -hmm. of is a sati. Sati is where right. The, yeah. Burn the Widow burning, yeah. wife. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When the husband dies, this is for your recording. I'm saying this. <laughs> when the yeah. husband dies, they basically burn the wife with them, and child right. marriage. Child marriage. Mm -hmm. is, you know, they get four or four-year-old kids married to eight-year-old guys and things like that. Yeah. And they boldly put a stop to it. I I don't know whether they did it because of Christianity. Or because mm -hmm. they felt really that it's a bad thing, so they put a stop to it. And Probably most of the British there didn't, didn't, didn't distinguish between uh, their religious impulses and their moral impulses. But yeah, yeah, morally it's wrong. Yeah. So, um, I think, but here they are, they did that in India, and then here they are basically saying, "Oh, we don't want to interfere with their religion. We don't want to, you know, we don't." Well, I, you know, I think that there's. But, 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 but I mean, to me, they're not different things. The thing is, is like, okay, when we are the, you know, the, the sovereign over a group of people that are foreign to us, there are certain mm. things that we feel are like fundamentally incompatible with our values. Mm. And there are certain things which are compatible with our values. And then there's a lot of discretionary stuff or things that are a little confusing in the middle, right? Yeah. And the, the thing that's interesting Mm. is that um, uh, in some ways there's a lot of ambiguity which works well for yeah. both sides. 
Definitely. Like the British don't have to like take a hard stand on all these issues. Um, it's like with their kids. Like they're like, I'd rather not get involved with that issue. You guys work it out amongst yourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And there's other things where people like if they if people can say, well, we're just sort of shading it. Like in the U.S., one of the more interesting case examples is, is polygamy in the Mormon Church, right? Because in right. the beginning it was very polygamous, and then there was all these weird machinations when Utah became a state. And then there was sort of this ultimatum where the church kind of finally decided, the mainstream Mormon church decided that they were going to do away with polygamy. Uh, yeah. And uh, there are a lot of fringe groups who still rebel against that and think of the, the mainliners as selling out. Uh, although I had a friend who was telling me, he's like, the, 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 the elders just went before God and they felt like, no, the right thing to do is to give up mm -hmm. polygamy. And like, mm -hmm. you know, exactly how they justified is not clear. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, I'm good for them that they made that choice. But, you know, the, uh, if the religious leaders can convince themselves that they're doing this on, um, you know, like, like, the, like the Mormons, if, they, if they're able to at least convince themselves, rightly or wrongly, that they're doing this for authentic reasons, because they yeah. feel it's actually what their God wants them to do, as opposed to right. for pragmatic reasons to make peace mm -hmm. with the secular power, it's a lot easier yeah. to live with yourself. Right, right, right. You know, and mm. the, um, but you know, and I think that there's a certain amount of that that has to go on in any sort of colonial environment. Is you kind of mm. have to lie to yourself a certain amount about like I'm doing this for the greater good of the nation, and it just so happens that I end up making a lot of money out of this. Yeah. Right. And living That's a better an life. And, thing is, yeah. And so much for the moral high ground, and when Gandhi started doing non-violent ways of protesting instead of applauding him they beat him up <laughs> well yeah like this is the thing it's because he, he found the point of their hypocrisy it's yeah. like it's one thing to say oh yeah we're just these enlightened rulers we're just bringing peace it's like yeah up to the point well is this uh, have we talked about amygdala hijack on this podcast um mm. but phil g sent me this article from his uh, pastor in india uh, american mm. who's also an executive coach and he did a two-part yeah. series about uh, the amygdala hijack. Is that like normally we yeah. do deliberative yeah. thought in like the frontal cortex, but if something either threatens our identity or reminds us of past trauma, then our amygdala mm. sort of takes over. We get into this fight or flight uh, okay. mindset uh, yeah. where everything sort of turns black and white and you're, you get this brain freeze where you're not able to think or reason. Yeah. You end up having to just react. Yeah. And it's a survival instinct if your life is actually in the line, but if it's not, then it can lead to all sorts of unhealthy and toxic behaviors, both yeah. uh, internally and externally. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons you and I started this podcast is because trying to talk about some of these issues were too emotional for us <laughs> in our real life. And so by talking about it in the context of these fictional books, we're able to engage sort of the, whole, the whole of our brain. That's why I started. I don't know. <laughs> I know. From if, your if, point you, of if you're unsure, then after this, you can go back and do my uh, redeeming activity <laughs> and see how we can handle it. We got stuck last time. Yeah. Especially when we start talking about medicine and the medical establishment. <laughs> but but the, I think so, the interesting thing is that, but like I said, when, well, like the British. There's certain things that they don't care about. There's certain things that they can deal with in a rational way and say, oh, okay, this is just an understood problem. We know how to deal with it. But then yeah. these things that threaten their identity, in particular, well, this is interesting, it threatens the inherent contradictions 
in their existing self-identity of themselves as these sort of benign, enlightened rulers. And when Gandhi points that out, uh, they end up getting an amygdala freeze. And the only yeah. way they can react is with brute violence because yeah. they have no stable identity in which yeah. to negotiate. Yeah. And, oh, this is interesting. I had a discussion with my friend. I'm doing a book study on Oryx and Crake. And we were talking about forgiveness and grief and ego. Mm. And the thing that came up was that, well, you know, maybe the reason why forgiveness uh, is hard is that it is very, it is sort of uh, very close to giving up. It, 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 mm. it can feel very much like saying this thing, like I'm angry about this thing because this thing is important. It matters. Yeah. It has yeah. great value. And if I say, well, if, if I forgive the person who violated that norm, it feels like saying, oh, then that doesn't, that's not, it, it, it's not the same thing as, but it's very close to saying that other thing doesn't matter. It's not important. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to say that this thing that I valued is unimportant or evil. And so I feel the need to um, defend it, even if it ends up doing things that I end up, you know, not being proud of. And okay. I think I that, that there's that, a... Uh, but but it's interesting, that like, so is, is it why, you know, why couldn't the British uh, have just said, you know, you're right, we've been rulers long enough, and it's mm. getting kind of toxic, let's just back off and yeah. let Gandhi do his thing. And they just couldn't, yeah. because the only reason they were able to, you know, go through the enormous expenditure of time and treasure and lives, you know, to build these empires, is they, is they didn't just convince themselves that it was good for Britain. Right? I think they'd convinced themselves it was good for the people too, that they were the good guys. Yeah, and, they don't know what, yeah, they don't know. And, and, they, and they deliberately suppressed the part of themselves that was aware that they were doing all these horrible things. Yeah. They just said, well, that was an aberration, that we didn't mean to do that. You know, yeah. it was just, you know, and, and like, in some ways, the reason they had to violently suppress Gandhi is because they'd already violently suppressed that part of themselves. Uh, mm. and, and sort of, and they, they built their identity. This is why I said that remembered trauma and pillars of identity are kind of yeah. two sides of the same thing. Is mm. that the, the they had formed their identity by almost by definition by refusing to face the fact that there was a downside to colonialism. Right. And they were in complete denial about that. And Gandhi uh, forced them to confront that contradiction. And yeah they could not respond in a thoughtful way. They just, the only option was to either run away in terror or react yeah. with violence, fight or flight. And yeah, so coming back to the book, coming back to the book, the Dutch are doing the same thing. And the interesting thing there is that they're in a big uh, war with the Indonesians, right? Mm. So, uh, and they it's not just a hypothetical rebellion. Uh, there's a war going on. It's not happening in Bali, but so they are basically afraid. Maybe like you were saying, like with Jesus too, that these people, if this guy brings up this religion, then they may turn militant. Or, you know, these what are fascist people. The first thing is that you know that, that that the Romans will come and they will take away our nation and our place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right? part and especially of when you have. In some ways, it's even worse when you have this sort of delegated hierarchy, because it's not yeah. so much what they would actually do, it's what you've been trained to be afraid of bringing up to your superiors. Yeah. Right. Like, no one wants to be the guy to have to explain, whereas, you know, some guy who's yeah, more like... Under my watch. 
Yeah, my, yeah, my where, where like this, like like this intelligent guy, the sensitive, compassionate guy, like he understands yeah. what's going on and why, and therefore he can say, okay, I can stay out so uncomfortable, but I can use my forebrain and I can think about how my superiors would respond and all this. Yeah. Where this other guy who was emotionally brittle and probably not very bright, he ends mm -hmm. up doing things that actually make the situation worse. Yeah, because <laughs> he's reacting, and yeah. that's the thing is that if our if we're reacting out of conditioned reflexes that were trained in a different environment, then we're going to have maladaptive behaviors that don't actually solve the current problem. They just make things yeah. worse. Right. And I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That'll be a good place to end. A, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good place to end. Hopefully we'll be back on track. Next week is Thanksgiving, so uh, Black Captain. Friday. Yeah. Yeah, but I think okay. uh, my schedule, I'll be home with the kids, but I think I'll still be able to squeeze on an hour for uh our call you're going anywhere okay. on friday dad After yeah and let me uh let me uh we'll get this up and then let me call you right back and talk about a couple of things that we need to talk about okay i okay. Have, actually have another call at one o'clock so you may have could you call yeah, it two? two minutes it's two minutes i'll call right back okay call right back okay, okay. bye love you bye, -bye. bye.